Hello, welcome back. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATOS, your hard-boiled speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are getting into comics with the first collection of the series Powers, entitled Who Killed Retro Girl? The series is written by Brian Michael Bendis with art, uh, absolutely stunning art, we should say, by Michael Avon Oming. These six issues were published by Image Comics in 2000 before being collected, I don't know, probably in 2001, I guess it must have been. This book was chosen by our Patreon supporters. It very narrowly beat out the first Scott Snyder volume of Batman, The, the Court of Owls, and absolutely crushed a Jeff Loeb Spider-Man book that nobody voted for, received zero votes in that poll. I read this book way back when it was first published because it was a birthday gift from my awesome friend Brent Helt, who is also my co-host on Hanging Out with the Dream King, our Neil Gaiman podcast. We are still working our way through the Sandman over there. So if you like comics or you like Neil Gaiman, and especially if you like both, uh, you should check out that show as well. Now, I, I was hooked on Powers immediately, and, and I've kept up with it, and I also binged everything by Bendis that I could get my hands on, though um, I would say that I'm about 10 years behind on that now, though I'm vaguely aware that he's writing Iron Man at this moment. In any case, I was really excited to read this again, and it definitely holds up. And In fact, I think I appreciate it more now than I did 20 years ago. So let's get into it. Let's go find out who killed Retro Girl. As the name suggests, Powers is a superhero comic. It's about people with superpowers. They're they're just called Powers in this speculative world. But even though it is about superheroes and supervillains, the, the story is not told from the point of view of any of the, the superheroes that we're going to meet. But in fact, it is a buddy cop story in a hard-boiled superhero world. So let's get right to it. Let's go meet our two buddy cops. First, we have Christian Walker, a rugged, no-nonsense homicide detective. The story begins with a, a cold open that introduces us to Walker and, and to this speculative world in general. We see here that we're in a big American city, and, and we're going to learn eventually that this is Chicago, though that's not clear in this first volume, though there is a very good joke at the expense of New York-style pizza uh, and in favor of hot dogs that I heartily approve of. And we see that Walker is a highly competent and also highly virtuous detective. Walker is a walking literary archetype, right? He is the chivalric hero of medieval romance turned into a hard-boiled detective. And something that I think is really awesome about this story is that both superhero stories and detective stories are modern developments of medieval romance. And Bendis puts both of these variations into one story. And in later installments, he's even going to explore some of the differences between those variations, and it's just going to be fantastic work. But back to the plot. So in this cold open, Walker is called in to deal with a supervillain who has taken a little girl hostage after killing her mother. Walker successfully navigates the situation, and, and how we see that he is indeed a chivalric hero is that his agenda, the most important thing for him here, is to make sure that the little girl is safe no matter what. And of course, that's precisely what a chivalric hero, a knight of the round table, is meant to do. Fight bad guys, yes, of course, but also, and I would say more importantly, protect widows and orphans and the unfortunate. 
And Bendis does this in this scene with some real humor, because in the end, Walker is stuck with this orphan girl whose name is Callista. And this is compounded by the fact that the same day, this very same day, the, the city's child services office was destroyed in some unexplained superpower related incident. And so at the end of the book, he's even going to have to take her home with him. And we'll come back to Callista later, but but now we need to go meet our other buddy. This is Dina Pilgrim, also a hard-boiled, no-nonsense detective, but where Walker is the strong, silent type, right, the real straight man here, Dina is over-talkative, and she provides the comedy for this duo. When our story begins, Walker works alone, but Dina has called in a favor to get partnered up with him, and the case of Who Killed Retro Girl is their first adventure together. So let's talk about Retro Girl. Retro Girl is basically Supergirl, and, and we should note that Powers is very much a metatextual commentary on superhero comics, and, and sometimes even on specific superheroes. We're going to meet fake Iron Man here in just a minute as well. Retro Girl is a young woman who can fly, she's explosion-proof, she wears a miniskirt, a corset, and a cape, and she is even described by a reporter as possessing all-American good looks. So, Supergirl, right? And the name, Retro Girl, is awesome. It it nicely characterizes Supergirl, and Superman too, as an old-fashioned superhero, a, a type of superhero who is replaced by Stan Lee's flawed heroes that we all know from Marvel comics, and maybe even more so from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I think it's probably significant that this whole series begins with her death, with the death of that type of superhero. So, all right, Retro Girl is dead. She's been killed in a mundane way. Her, her throat's been slit, which shouldn't even be possible. There is not much evidence to go on. And so Walker and Dina just go around and interview people who knew Retro Girl. This includes both heroes and villains. And this is a move that lets Bendis introduce us to the, the wider world of the superheroes here. And, and we get a lot of backstory in, in this part of it. There is, as I've said, an Iron Man stand-in here called Trip Hammer, and there's a, a superhero named Zora who gets her powers from believing that there is no god, and that in that case, she herself then is her own personal god. And this knowledge, or really we should say this belief, gives her power over the world. And this is a really interesting idea. I'm not going to talk about it here in this episode, but I would love to take it up on the forum especially in light of some other religious things that I am going to talk about in this episode. Zora, Triphammer, and Retro Girl all worked as solo heroes, but they did also occasionally team up, right? Classic comic book story. There was also a fourth hero they used to team up with, too, a guy named Diamond, who I think is meant to look like Nightwing, though that might not be the intended reference. Diamond has not been seen, however, since a really epic team-up to take out the Johnny Royale gang, and, and that was a few years ago. And hey, it turns out that Christian Walker used to be the superhero Diamond, but he lost his powers during that fight, and that's why he became a cop, right? To, to go on, to keep protecting the city, even though he doesn't have his superpowers anymore. Well, the plot at this point is going to take us back to Callista, that, that orphan girl that Walker rescues at the, the top of the book. Walker and Dina don't really get anywhere in their investigation, just walking around asking people if they've killed Retro Girl. Turns out isn't really maybe the best way to find out. But Callista notices some graffiti at the crime scene, and, and this leads them to the bad guy. And in the end, it turns out that Retro Girl was killed by just a regular dude who hated superheroes. 
This regular dude was able to invent a device that could turn off superpowers. Uh, And this isn't new. The the police have these devices, but it is a technology that's not available to civilians. And this guy ambushed Retro Girl. He turned off her powers while she was in flight and then slit her throat when she fell to the ground. Walker and Dina bring this guy in. He confesses to the crime. And with the case closed, they're putting this guy in a police van to be taken to prison and just as they're doing this, Triphammer shows up and he kills the bad guy. Now, of course, this is illegal. It's also morally wrong, but Triphammer doesn't care. He says, I did what must be done to end this with honor. The trial would have been a circus. It would have no meaning. It would have brought nothing but fame to those who don't deserve it. And it would have given this insane, worthless insect what he wanted. That people know him. To know his name. And Triphammer just disappears after this. No one can find him. And so the case is simply over. And so is this volume of powers. All right, so it's a a short book and a uh, consequently short recap, so we can just get straight into the themes. As I've said, Powers is deconstructing the superhero genre. And even just this very first storyline here does an excellent job of this. Superhero comics are overwhelmingly concerned with justice, with with dealing with people who break the rules, uh, with maintaining peace and security, and of course, with avenging wrongs. Now, these aren't all the same type of justice, and, and much of the drama in superhero stories is about the question of whether all of them really are justice. Often, this comes in the form of the question of whether vengeance is a type of justice, but even if they are all types of justice, there's the question of whether they are all equally virtuous, or if one of them is more virtuous than the others, and if so, which one? And in some ways, these different types of justice come out of different ethical systems, right? And and, and these ethical systems can overlap, but they often are also in conflict with each other. And that's what a lot of superhero comics are about. And we see this clearly in this story here with Trip Hammer's action at the end, right? Was killing the villain murder? Was it vengeance? Was it justice? And this type of question is often at the core of detective stories, too, especially hard-boiled detective stories. And indeed, hard-boiled detectives frequently think that the justice system of their society is corrupt or incompetent or, or just otherwise flawed, that... It's not really a system of justice at all, and their whole raison d'etre, their whole their whole reason for existing is to enforce true justice. And Dashiell Hammett's Red Harvest is a great example of this. This is a book that I highly recommend reading if you're interested in this and, and haven't read a lot of hard-boiled detective fiction. As I've said, both of these genres, hard-boiled detective stories and superhero stories, are modern variations on medieval chivalric romance. And so we expect our heroes to be better than us, to be gooder than us, right? To be more virtuous. But that is going to be tested. In all of these stories, there's going to be moral trials that chivalric heroes have to go through. And how well they handle them will determine whether they can achieve the grail quest or not. In detective fiction, they almost never can because the hard-boiled detective genre grows up in the aftermath of the First World War. It's a, it's a genre that is rooted in the idea that the world itself is fallen and imperfect, uh, almost uh, almost the idea that there isn't really any Holy Grail to find in the first place, that the, the Grail quest is an ideal. It's, it's not a, a tangible thing. Now, although I've read most of Powers, most of this series, it's been a decade since I have, and I don't remember where this story is going. 
But something that jumps out to me immediately on this read is that both of our detectives have names that call up Christianity, and, and in particular, call up the idea of the Grail Quest. On the nose, of course, is Christian Walker. But Dina Pilgrim is also a fascinating name to think about from this perspective. The word pilgrim means a person who travels to a religious site for a religious purpose. And in fact, right, we could even define pilgrim as a Christian walker. So both of these detectives have names that indicate that they are on some kind of religious journey in a genre, the origins of which is concerned with the quest for justice and goodness in a religious context. So this is something that I'm going to want to keep my eye on if our our patrons decide that we should keep reading this series. All right, there's a second thing I want to talk about too, and that is friendship, though maybe we might think about it more as loyalty and, and trust. When our story opens, Walker is a solo act, though in the past, as a superhero, he has worked Uh, as a team, sometimes at least. And indeed, because of that previous life, he feels like he owes something to Retro Girl. And that friendship, that that duty to his former colleague, former co-worker, motivates him to solve the case just as much as his duty as a a police officer to, to uphold the law. And we see this with Trip Hammer too, right? Trip Hammer believes that protecting the memory of Retro Girl is worth killing for. Though we can also see, I should say, that this murder is a type of personal vengeance, as Trip Hammer is avenging his friend here. But this theme is really at the fore of the story in the relationship between Walker and Dina. Walker is basically just carrying out the investigation on his own, and he's really just kind of letting Dina tag along with him as a kind of sidekick. Walker has insights into the case, he's got relationships with suspects, all because he used to be Diamond, right? Because he used to be a superhero himself. But he doesn't explain any of this to Dina, and it is obvious to her that he is hiding something. And she asks him, but he doesn't tell her, and so she finds out on her own. And Walker knows immediately that she's discovered that he used to be Diamond, and he is furious about it. He says they can't be partners, and that she needs to transfer because he can't trust her. She's a sneak. But Dina gives this right back to him. He was hiding things from her, and he even lied to her-ish anyway, right, a lie of omission, when she asked him if he had powers. And one of my favorite scenes in the book is when they hash this all out on the the roof of the, the police headquarters here, when Walker comes clean and Dina explains that she requested to be his partner, and they make up, and they go about their business because it turns out that they both want the same thing, justice for bad guys. Now, in contrast to this, we also encounter a detective who keeps getting in the way of their investigation. This is uh, Detective Cutter. Detective Cutter is not a team player. He's not even working this case. But nonetheless, he he brings a suspect in for questioning and threatens to, to jeopardize the whole thing because of his just real selfish stupidity. He also sexually harasses Dina and is just generally a, a jerk to everyone. And Cutter here, then, he he provides a great contrast to the buddy part of the story. He is someone who is in this for himself and has no sense of team or loyalty, right? These are things that then are held up as virtues, having a sense of team, feeling loyalty, feeling friendship for people is a real virtue in this world. All right, so you can probably tell that I love this book, and so perhaps, hopefully, you will not be surprised to hear that I have a long list of strengths and no list of weaknesses, but I'm going to actually restrict myself to talking about just three aspects of this book that I found to be really, really strong. 
And those are the art, the dialogue, and the world building. Michael Oming's art is just spectacular, especially his use of sharp angles in, in buildings and people, but more especially in his use of light in his panels. And this is something that he and Bendis had, had worked out as a, a foundational aspect of the series. They, they wanted to do a comic book version of a film noir, and they have nailed it, I think. Uh, I'll say, too, that, that Pat Garrahy did an amazing job with the colors. I mean, they just pop off the page. It is a beautiful book to look at. And something with comic book art that Brent and I do over on Hanging Out with the Dream King is to select a, a favorite panel to really dissect. And even though Brent's not here, uh, I thought it would be fun to to do this here for Who Killed Retro Girl. Now, if you listen to Hanging Out with the Dream King, then you already know that I have a tendency to pick full page panels. In fact, it's something Brent is trying to electroshock out of me. Uh, but he's not here, so I'm going to pick a full page panel for this book, too. And in this case, it is the last page of issue one. This is the panel where we see the body of Retro Girl at the, the crime scene. There is a lot that is really awesome about this panel, but what really strikes me about it on this read is that very much like the story itself is drawing on medieval Christian literature, this panel draws heavily from medieval Christian art. For one, Retro Girl is dead and bloody, and her arms are splayed outward such that she is forming a cross. In short, she looks very much like a crucified Christ. And on top of this, the, the second thing that jumps out here is that Oming is using a triangular composition in which Retro Girl is the top of the triangle and Walker and Dina provide the other angles at the base. And this is a favorite technique of late medieval painters such as Leonardo da Vinci and Piero della Francesco, just for, for two examples. And part of that, of course, is because it appeals to our eye. We like triangles. But of course, the number three, and especially the idea of three individuals, is highly significant in Christianity. So for me, looking at this, and what I really love about this is that this panel reinforces the medieval archetypes of the story, but I also love how it asks us to consider in what ways Dina and Walker might be analogs for aspects of the Trinity, right? Especially if Retro Girl is, as I think here, uh, looking like Christ, standing in for Christ. In what way then is Dina God or the Holy Spirit or vice versa? Uh, I'd love to hear if you have any thoughts about that. But while I'm picking favorites, let's talk about dialogue. Bendis is a master of dialogue and he nails the hard-boiled dialogue tropes here. I'm just going to give you one example because otherwise I'll just devolve into reading the whole book to you. When Walker brings Callista to the station, he doesn't know what to do with a little kid, so he pours her a bowl of cereal. And she says, you keep cereal in your desk? That's the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. To which Walker replies, well, you're young. And look, this is a funny exchange between a single man who is married to his job and a little kid. But it also reinforces who Walker is, right? What role he's playing in the story. And it's just awesome. And and there are numerous examples of this type of dialogue throughout the book. It's just a joy, just a genuine, tremendous pleasure to read. But let's get to my, my final strength here. Let's talk a little about Bendis' world-building techniques. Something that I love about comics is that you can do a lot on the page, right? There's a lot that you can do with this medium. You can use images to build the world as well as words, which is something that the novels that we're covering on this show don't do. But you can also interrupt your images or have multiple sets of images at a time, which is something that would be very confusing on screen in a, in a movie or in a, in a TV show. 
But Bendis takes full advantage of what the medium allows him to do. And so he uses a lot of the background to show us how the police station functions and to introduce us to the wider world of superheroes without necessarily calling attention to it. And and he does this by showing us posters and newspapers in the background, that sort of thing, for example. But Bendis also uses the device of the TV news coverage of Retro Girl's murder to tell us more about this world. And on many pages, this runs at the bottom of the page, and it's just a, a secondary narrative that is happening concurrently with the, the main story that occupies, I guess, the upper 80% of the page. So, you know, you could read both stories on each page as you go, or you could read one story all the way through the issue and then go back and read the other one all the way through the issue, right? There's a lot of agency on the reader's behalf here, uh, which is something that I really love about the way comics function as a, a storytelling medium. And it really makes me excited to do more comics here on ATOS. I mean, we're not going to turn into a comics podcast, I promise. But I would probably like to do maybe two graphic novels, two volumes or, or two collected volumes of an ongoing series, uh, you know, per year, something like that. I think it would be a lot of fun to, to keep comics in our repertoire here on ATOS. Well, that brings my review to a close. I hope you'll come talk with me about this book on the ATOS forum. And if you're a Patreon supporter and you'd like more Powers Talk from us on one of our shows on the network, let us know. Uh, We could even maybe check out the TV adaptation, which I've never seen, but has been on my list for a little while now. But for now, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And and that includes Hanging Out with the Dream King, a Neil Gaiman podcast where Brent Helt and I are reading The Sandman issue by issue. I hope you'll check that out. We've been having a lot of fun revisiting this uh, seminal work from our adolescence. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman and the network is at Clay Temple Media. Next time, we'll return to prose here. We'll be reading The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. And until then, remember, if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. 